Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Welcome to yet another Memo episode where we dive deep on one of the funds that we're raising an EU VC community syndicate for. In other words, one of the funds that you can join us in backing with minimum tickets at just 1,000 euros. For this episode, we're talking to Cristobal from Startup Wise Guys. You've met him before in past episodes, so you know he's quite a personality and that it's an incredible mission they're on. So join us as we look behind the scenes of the Startup Wise Guys investment into Factory and the journey from pre-seed to Series A leading to a 120x multiple. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. How are you, Cristobal? How's everything? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to see that finally Andreas is getting actually branded merchandise, you know. So, you know, yeah, no, it's the first time, you know, so... <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. We're learning from some of the best, namely uh, a guy called Cristobal Alonso from a firm. I don't know if you've heard them, Startup Wise Guys, because they're always really well branded. <laughs> Not doing too well today. I was thinking like, I'm missing my banner behind it and we just made a banner for Rival and we have one about in the office in Malaga. That's okay. I will survive just with Red today. Cristobal, today is a special episode throughout the European VC for a bunch of reasons. I think reason number one is that we're also doing it live on LinkedIn, which we normally don't do. So that's exciting. Let's see how people receive it and if they like it or not. Second big reason is because this is a first-time format. It's called the Startup Memo. And the reason we're doing that is because, you know, as our audience knows, is we're doing a syndicate in the Startup Wise Guys. We're super happy and excited about it. But also because, Cristobal, you have a bit of a reputation of getting people around you excited. And so we thought it would be a really cool way to show the power of the accelerator-based VC model that Startup Wise Guys has. The, the coolest way to do it would be to have you talk about a deal that you guys did and that excites you and why you did it, et cetera, et cetera. That's the Startup Memo, memo style. Before we start, Cristobal, I'd love to ask you one thing. Most of our listeners and audience are GPs and LPs, or at least aspiring LPs in some way, and that's why they did the syndicates with us. Why the hell do you think they should care about what we're going to talk now, and what's your take on the value they can extract from hearing us chat for the next 30, 40 minutes? The theme is helping understand the trade-off between risk-reward of basically very early-stage investment, of being the first believer, as we said. There is a perception in the market about risk and the comparison between Series A, seed, pre-seed funds, or accelerated yeah. funds. I think that's the best value and obviously how that draws part of the passion and the connection that we have with founders. And I think it's very different when you best match later and you're just one of those investors joining. I think the connection that we draw with the founders and the journey, it becomes much bigger. This is like Jerry Maguire, you know, in the pizza for the $7 million deal, he's on the right side. <laughs> but on the first pitch, he said, I want to be the guy there, right? So we are the Jerry Maguire. We're part of the pitch, but if you only, only at the end. You're going to be in the corner, so most newspapers will cut you, right? You're not important anymore, right? But I think that connection that we build with the player, with Jerry, right? I think that that's part of the story also that probably is interesting to hear. Cristobal, before we dive into the startup that we're going to look at, which is, of course, Factory, I'll ask you to just give us the real quick pitch on Factory. What is Factory and why are they amazing? And why did you say, if we're going to talk about one of our 300 startups, we're going to talk about Factory? Well, I'll tell you first what they do and I'll tell you why it's exciting. But basically, uh, Factory is putting together Industry 4.0. So how can we, using a peer-to-peer or sharing connectivity, uh, make industry manufacturing more efficient? So in a way, they are sharing what machines can do in one part of the world with the needs of other people in, in another part of the world and using excess capacity 
to basically make this happen, right? When they started with us, it was just about metal cutting or laser cutting machinery, uh, sharing. Now the model has expanded. Why we were excited, it was a very young team with no F idea about industry, revolutionizing industry, right? And I will tell you a bit more afterwards, but I think it was the power of the team. It was three guys just out of university and not even talent from Tattoo. Uh, wanted to revolutionize this one and we saw a power of a very interesting team capable of making things happen then the rest is history and we can talk about it more in details right and i think obviously this estonian connection and if today you see these top 10 companies that might be the next unicorn in estonia they're always one of them right but i think it's obviously the estonian connection for us is always i think part of the of being proud of our heritage and being proud of our founders and having good estonian being from estonia initially is always a good and powerful story right and what you just touched on is actually where I want us to start, because I want us to start with your first meeting with Martin, Joseph, and Ryan. That's the founding team of Fractory. And I just want to hear, what is it about them that got you so excited? First, remember, this is five years ago, almost, yeah, five years ago. So first, all the bootcamps were physical, right? So you probably, yeah. everything was very different from today, in a way. So in fact, the whole application process mostly happened online, and you start ranking, debating, etc. Then you get the 25 that you like the most, and then you bring them for three days right together because we wanted to see them right so you do like today we still do all these 25 minutes meetings but they were physical but then you took them for drinks or for you wanted to discover the personal side of the companies right so in this case they all came to Riga, right and i think what excited us you know i, I tell you a bit of a story because actually Kerti comes from this that sector right from manufacturing that's his background and he said these guys don't understand shit about it <laughs> they don't understand anything about what they're talking but they're clearly smart and they clearly can click things right there was no belief in the way they were portraying how they will run the business then, that they have any future. But we <laughs> thought that the sector they were attacking needed a revolution, it was prompt to change, and that coming with a, a completely almost naive, fresh energy into that sector, they could actually find angles to disrupt it. The one thing that I did like it was the complement between the three founders. So, you know, it's even in my book also, because I put them as an example, and it's a funny but because, you know, one was clearly the CTO, then we have the sales guy, and then Marty says, and then it was me. So somebody has to run the company, right? <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm the CEO, right? It's a perfect quality of the CEO, right? He says, okay, you're best at that, you're best at that, now I'll deal with the rest of the shit that is going to come up. <laughs> but usually, in fact, the CEOs do the sales at the beginning. So it's usually not normal that you find in the first founding team a sales dedicated. You always find the, the CTO and the CEO, but usually the other guys usually mass the marketing or maybe sometimes even more product. But this was very clear. There was a sales guy and then Martin doing everything else. And I think that has played, I think, a, a good role on how he has evolved as a CEO. Because I think from the beginning, he was also into people, into how do we scale the people side, the recruiting, the scouting, because he was doing a tiny bit less of the sales. And he was also very worried about how do we scale this on the back end, right? So, and observing the issues when first going to the UK and recruiting and failing on the first team they put there. But again, to me, it did excite me. There was a very good skills balance between them. And that was a very interesting thing that we could work with for four months. Good market to be disrupted and zero industry knowledge. So basically means no assumptions. Everything could be questionable, hypothesized, and tested, right? It's interesting because, Cristobal, what you said, your perspective on it, at least, is a byproduct of the model you have because other models would say, well, if we think it's an exciting market, let's find the best team. And you're kind of saying, well, we actually had a bunch of super smart people here. We have a market that is big. We like it. We're excited about it a lot. And they have no assumptions. That's beautiful. But that's only because of your model. So I'd like to ask you two questions in one, which is what has happened in the last five years? And also what was your role as an investor, but also Startup Wise Guys as a whole in that journey? And just so we understand that better. We said we can make shit look like chocolate, but not taste like chocolate, right? So the first <laughs> part is that you need to get the best founders. The accelerator is amazing, but if you have a bad founder, it doesn't matter. You're not going to transform him right, or her. Yeah. But you have a good founder, 
then you can transform them into a better founder. And that was part of the work we did within the five months. They even were decent for Estonian standards pitching already at the beginning. It was about how do we build a company? How do we work with them to build a company? I even thought they're going to get some traction, but can they build a company? And from the beginning, their model was based in cross-country combinations, right? Because you need to get guys ordering in UK and taking it from Estonia and moving it. So the back end of the company, per se, need to be thought through from the beginning. Even if at the beginning everything was manual, but how do you get to that being automated, to that being scalable? So I think that was a lot of the thoughts. I think many times in the accelerators companies, we work also on scalability of sales, which we did a lead, but that becomes the main focus. I think with Raptor, it was about finding this business model that over time, it could be scaled. Fast forward when they are five months, when we finish the acceleration. Again, very good pitch, very good team, a bit of traction. I would say the first round was easy. We just kind of advising them, guys, let's aim at this valuation, let's look together at the deal, careful with the terms here, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there was enough excitement in Estonia with the young team to come there. There is this famous S-Band syndicate, which kind of looks for the best company, two of them every year. So they were a prime target for that, right? So yeah. we knew that was going to happen. So we just helped yeah. them advise them, but that was okay. I think the problem yeah. started afterwards. Their main focus was how to enter the UK. We had a, a role there, mostly about being able to answer Martin calls. Somebody said, this is not working, or I don't know how I feel about this guy, or I maybe we're doing something wrong here. So what, being that sounding board in that process of the first internationalization was, I think, the, the key role that we have, which allowed, I think, then to, when that was right, to get the next round. They were doing well, so they were doing themselves. And then I would say the other pivotal moment was, has been in Series A. And this has been interesting because there was interest. Martin did a good job. The company has a very good growth. They have had a couple of times in which the growth has slowed down for two to three months. And they were very smart at going there about why this happens, right? So I almost don't know any company that is MRA growth, 48 months. They have good ones. They grow for 12 months. They find a, a plateau. They figure out what's going on. They come back stronger. It happens again. It happens two or three times. So that has happened to them. And they have used every crisis to come up stronger by making changes on the back end and on the talent side. But in the serious way, the key thing was there was a number of people that wanted a piece of the action. And a couple of them are VCs that are very close to us. And at some point, Martin played hardball. And one of the VCs got out of the deal because he was being fair. I said, guys, this is what yeah. I want. The VC thought, ah, I'm going to get a better deal. And he walked away. And then we were repeating, but everybody was calling us. Martin, <laughs> the VCs, can you help us? Can you intermediate? I know you're a good friend. We want to be in the deal. How do we do it? So I think we were, we're always looking for the founder. And everybody knows for the founder well-being, let's say. Yeah. But also helping, hey, how do we do this? No, we are fair. So you don't break the relationship with VCs for the future, even if you say no. And at the end of the day, in fact, everybody came in. But at the conditions that Martin thought were fair, I think that was a very good outcome there. We had a role on that one. And maybe the last one has been, Martin has hired actually extremely good, apart from the founders, management team. He has added a CFO, top quality, head of HR, and he's been having these discussions with him about, okay, so what are you not doing now? Uh, and he told me, man, dude, I was doing HR. When I hired this woman, wow, this is a, <laughs> it's a new ball game. I was doing so many things wrong, right? Uh, when he hired the CFO, this guy is amazing, right? Like the amount of information and data that I get. So I think it's helping shaping this management team when you grow. I'm thinking that, you know, the founders think, even if they stay on the roles, they can learn. And they have hired people with 10, 15 more years than them. And they are a very powerful combination of those two, right? So being sounding board on some of the initial mistakes, being there for the founder, helping when the rounds get in, either with the intros or within the round management, being there to how do we actually, and sometimes even intermediating to a certain degree, and then in the evolution of the organization, being somebody who understands this and forcing Martin to ask himself questions has been also important, right? And obviously, always giving them a good word out. Right? So for us, they have always been one of our things that we always love. 
And he's an amazing role model in the community. He, I don't know if he was with the Prime Minister of Estonia, in fact, two weeks ago, interviewing her in the stage, right? So he's now the role model in Tartu about how you don't need to leave a, a middle town regional in a place in Eastern Europe to become a unicorn. You can do it from here as long as you have an international mindset. That has been actually an amazing thing to see, right? Maybe, Cristobal, you could just finish the story with now the phrase Series A. Could you know that it gave you 120x so far, but the size of it, where you're seeing them heading, uh, that kind of thing, could you just wrap up the story there? Because then we can get back to... Yeah, first the, the story is they should be a unicorn. And, and a unicorn based on revenues, by the way. So I think it's not a unicorn, just, you know, I have seen the growth, they, they just did a monster, GMB, a margin. A lot of the work has been actually working on margins, which I think that's the smart thing to do. It's not just about growth on the top line, it's about do you have margins to sustain? We're working in industry, you're working almost in a marketplace level, right? And that's what they have been doing, right? But I see them, there are two rounds for unicorn. I think they can be unicorn in CUC. Yeah. It's not the objective, but we love to. If they put your hand in the fire, I said, if I have to put the hand on the fire for my first unicorn, one of the top three that I would love them to be, right? Because to me, <laughs> it represents all the things well done. Sustainable company, good founders, creating a company with values, growing steadily, doing it the right way. And young guys from a regional city, not even Tallinn. Yeah. So it's all about, if I want to tell a story, this is the guys, right? So I see them heading in that direction. I don't think they will be acquired before because I see them with a lot of energy, with a very good management team. That's, they don't want the unicorn. They want to grow this company. If they do well, yeah. it's not a unicorn. That's, right. that's why I see it. And mm-hmm. again, remember, the guys are, most of them are not even 30. They're having the first kid right now. Martin is expecting his first kid, right? So I think that there is a lot of room and energy still left on them. And in a way, they're only operating between US, UK, a bit of Scandinavia and Estonia. And in the US, it's just first steps, right? So there's still a lot of room to grow in the yeah. company. Yeah. So well executed, that takes them to unicorn in the next 18 to 24 months. There's longer, who cares? But that's, that's the thing with the heading. I would just love to hear a bit more about the very early days and also because now it's post-factual, right? All the things you saw back then, do you see that they have come to uh, fruition? And also, what did you not see? What did you, you know, because you have this process of doing a three-day super intense boot camp with them, where you then after that need to form your own opinion. Is this going to work? I'd love to hear thinking about that in terms of this company. Let's not be presumptuous, but let's see how I say this without sounding stupidly arrogant. I have no (laughs) doubt about that. I didn't know, of course, if they're going to become a hundred million unicorn company, right? But I had no doubt they will walk the talk to CUSA to certain degrees if you look at the steps, right? They had all the components to do it. What I didn't see, how amazing of a CEO Martin has become because of his age, because of his background. I thought he was going to be a good CEO. I couldn't even see him stepping into a different management role at some point. He was terrible at pitching. In fact, two co-founders are even better. Actually, one of the best CEO pitching was always his founder. He has this story. Uh, uh. <laughs> but he has become a great storyteller. And maybe not the most charismatic guy still when pitching, but a very good storyteller. Right? And I think that's a great quality. But again, I didn't see to the extent that he has become such an amazing CEO and leader of the organization. Right? And that to me, you know, that is great. I want to take us back to what I would call one of the fundamentals, right? <laughs> which is the market. As you're saying, Cristobal, you guys got excited about it. The space was super interesting to you. Take us through that process. How did you look at this market? How would you define this market? And why did you think it was exciting five years back? And of course, it's an unfair question because you've seen it develop, but we'd love to understand your thinking. Yeah, it's not unfair questions, I would say, in life, about why we were born and why we were going to die, right? And you don't have an answer to those, so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We saw very little innovation still on the market, right? This is, you know, metal cutting, so heavy manufacturing, very local because of the nature of the size of the machinery, of the components, of the materials. So when analyzing the market, we saw a market that was 20 years behind other industries. Also, we have seen a lot of the serine economy, how it has been impacting other, let's talk about even, you know, taxis, right? Which even nobody expected anything like that. So we have seen already, remember, Taxify, now Bolt, 
was yeah. nobody wanted to invest on them, right? And it came out of Estonia, but that was five years before. So I think we have seen that there was a, a certain economy play, maybe, very non-innovative uh, market coming on. And clearly, the pain point, which was excess capacity in large manufacturing, not being accessible to small players, specifically just because of lack of info and lack of transparency. Not because they were hiding, but it was no way to find it. Right? So that allowed us to say, there's clearly a market. The question is, what's the business model to attack it, right? The second part you say is like, hey, it's metal, it's cutting. It's never going to stop. There's going to be housing all the time. There's going to be elevators all the time. So I think we saw that coming. And then when we saw competition, that's the second part you want to analyze in the market, right? There was nothing big yet, right? So you might have another small guy trying to do things, but there was nothing uh, emerging, not even a role model in the US yet, right? So some people say, well, that means there's no market. <laughs> that is sometimes true, that it might be too early. But I don't think we're afraid that it was too early. It was the right time, and it will take time. And it has taken five years to get there, right? So, yeah. And there was an entry point into the U.S. and the U.K. We were looking also at Germany at that time. We saw that in some of the largest markets, there was an entry point. It was possible to enter them from foreign country. We see in other places it's not possible. In other industries it's not possible. This was possible because the business model they had in mind, right? So that made us believe it market makes sense, right? U.K. has ended up being a very big market for them and bigger than Estonia where they started. Why do you think that is, and what learnings have you drawn from it? UK is a very industrial country, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, because with uh, way less uh, language barriers that you will find, for example, you want to penetrate the Italian market, which could say is another very heavy industry. So I think Germany and, and UK were the two prime candidates, and Germany had a lot of the same barriers that you find in Italy, right? I might say that in Italy, they were mostly prospecting the Scandinavian as the first step because of the price arbitrage of price difference if you manufacture from Estonia. They did have some ways to implement things in Estonia. They tested basically with the Nordics, I would say, the model. But then very quickly it was clear that the demand was in the different industries in the UK and that the price difference will be there for the long term. So it was more about how do you enter the market, right? And for them, the key thing was getting the right people. As I said, the first team iteration was disastrous. Nothing worked. They basically replaced the first full team fully. But it was not a very expensive learning. They were smart at not putting all the bets into see guys very expensive. They did it well. So there was a space to meet, to make a mistake. And that's one of the things we work a lot with the teams. It's like, when you go into new markets, allow yourself to test it and fail. Not that if it fails, you're out of the game, right? And that has to be by the way you hire or by the way you partner or by the way you do the agreements or by the way you yourself go there. The good thing in the UK, every market is local. At the end, you need local connections, right? But it's one of the markets that foreigners can come in, speak the language and, and do business, right? And I think that's a good thing about the market that I think is the only European market, maybe the Netherlands, but it's small enough, right? That has that capability. In any other market in Europe, you need the local connection. You hire it, you buy it, whatever. In the UK, you can do a lot of experiments yourself or understanding language helps. Again, you travel there, you spend time there. And I think the good thing also there is it was not London, right? It was not going to London. It was going to the yeah. UK. And there is not that much attention to like, you know, Newcastle, Manchester. There's much less going on there. So you can actually find amazing talent there. If you go to London, you probably lose your shirt if you get it wrong. If you go to Manchester, you go to Newcastle, or any other city there, I think the possibility, and because it was industry, that was the direction, right? I think yeah. that was a very helping point. I love and sexy industries. I love it. It's not about PR. It's not about sexy. It's about building businesses. And in people in these industries, if you have a good proposition, they're going to test it because it's way less of the sexiness of what you're trying to do, right? Yeah. I also want to take another development in the story of Fractory. 2020, COVID year, right? That was a great year <laughs> for them, actually. If you have the numbers top of mind and you can share, I'd love to hear them. But also your um, understanding to what made them robust at that time that for some other startups was, was a really tough time. And what were the factors that made that possible for them? If you think about in the industry, the main impact has been humongous cost. So the fact that when COVID started, the Chinese market closed 
that the manufacturing, suddenly there was no materials coming, every price was going up two, three, four times. Suddenly, everybody in this industry said, is there another way? Right? So in fact, they have a model in which they could use excess capacity, excess materials, send me the cut online, I print it here and send it to you. I do it within the EU. We can use local capacity. So I think that part, they were in the right place. Right? And I think yeah. they have been around for long enough to be solid enough to manage that. Right? If it would happen maybe a year and a half before, it would be too early to take advantage of that fully. Right? I think the second yeah. thing is, as I said, they were in the second team iteration. So they had the right people in place to understand how to do it. So I think they were in the right place in the right moment and they, they were ready. Right? And I think yeah. everything that happened around COVID forced all the industries to take the next step to- towards digitalization. And they were a clear candidate to do this properly. Right? If you look at the Series S21, right? So in fact, this was 20 was the, the one that put the numbers in the right place right? and almost made what it was to happen. And there has been no turning back, meaning some other industries have tried to go back to old ways, right? I think the industry has not changed. The industry has said, we need to do yeah. more of this. If you look at Construtech or, or Contech, depending on how people are calling yeah. it, there is yeah. more and more coming. I think we are in Construtech 1.5, right, Max? There is still a lot of development coming up. So I think we just want yeah. to see more and more. And one of these same factories, see a lot of people reaching out to them to do collaborations. They have become also a hub to do things, right? Yeah, and that's a very interesting play for them uh, going yeah. forward. Right? They're in 10 superficials, I think, right now. If you look at the, you know, all the you know, things, you know, laser cutting, plasma, flame cutting, water jet, tubos, machining. So there's so many superticals within this area that they can help and put collaborations going forward. Right? Yeah. And I think that connects beautifully to a natural follow-up question to the one I asked, which would be the sustainability of it, right? Because we've seen many startups grow or have success. A lot could be said about what that means, but let's, let's not go into that rabbit hole. During COVID, that was not sustainable. In this specific case, you know, we're talking about growth from fundamentals of getting new clients, getting new business. So that's one thing, of course. But I'd love to ask you, why do you think this is now sustainable? And we'll keep on seeing this growth post-COVID as well as we're now entering that era. First, by the way, they were never portraying themselves as a sustainability company, but in fact, they are saving CO2, right? So in fact, yeah, I wasn't talking about that sustainability, know, but yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah, you, yeah. you throw it there, I said, hey, I market that even there. You have right? to, you have to so, put it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think they, and that was not, they have never been their, their marketing point, yeah. but in fact, they have been able to prove this over time, right? I think they were sustainable because I think they have made the mistakes on the team hires previously, and I think they have the team and the maturity to help them grow through this, right? Um, they actually, the CFO and the CHRO, they were hired in the second wave of COVID, right? So basically the second summer, 21. Yeah. Right? They almost got the people lined up before CUSA. And once they had the funding to get that A-team, they put it in place, right? So I think, again, their mentality, they were constantly thinking how to do this in a sustainable manner. They were constantly thinking, who are we missing in the team? And the fact that they have made mistakes on the hiring process early on, I think have put them very much about how to do this right. And then maybe the, the last one is the margins, right? We had a very painful story on an amazing startup that was, Probably, I would say, was competing with Fractory on being the start in the portfolio. <laughs> and suddenly, they, they just have to close their business. And I think the key part was there that in both cases, they were looking at GMB, let's say. But for Martin and the team, they were looking at the margins all constantly as a key variable of their growth, right? And I think there is too many people building businesses on growth, but focusing sometimes on the brown KPIs. And that's what the investors should prove their value, right? Investors will say, you know, and I, you know, I run a marketplace in the past. I said, why are you focusing on number of goods sold? Why do you not focus on the number of trading happening in your marketplace? Yeah. Or how fast when you put a, a good is being sold, right? So, and I think sometimes they're looking at growth wrongly. I think Fractory was looking at DMB growth for sure, but it was analyzing this on the margin level. Yeah. And I think this was actually similarly relevant, and that was always part of the search 
And when entering new countries, we're looking at, hey, by the way, they're now in Italy, again, finally, but because it was always an industry <laughs> that makes sense, but they came in the right moment. They explored the countries on the right moment. It was not for them, let's just say we are in 20 countries, it's let's be in one country properly. And once they got the UK properly, then they started experimenting with the US. Now they got to Italy. There's too many people worrying about being in 10 countries and putting that as part of the deck instead of being in a country very well. I always tell my startups, why do you want to go there? Why don't, if you're having momentum here, build the momentum, become a dominant player in your market if it's big enough, right? And then go to the next one instead of start putting resources in different places because you're too fragile up to CSA even sometimes in CSA. Especially in Europe where you have borders that you have to cross every single time. So like in the States where you're okay, you go from one state to another and then, you know, it's roughly the same legal frameworks. It's the same language, all that. Here it's a very different experience every single time. So oftentimes, right, build until you get to the stage where you can then acquire the distribution network or whatever you need in the other country. Cristobal, you just gave us a bunch of numbers and metrics-like stats, and I'd love to just dive a bit more into that and say, when you made the decision in the beginning, you obviously had no traction But I, or to look at. I'd love to hear both very early stage, how did you look at traction with factor, and then afterwards also, how did traction then develop for this case, and when did you start feeling very comfortable that they would develop in the right direction? Things have changed a little bit, right? We're taking... Uh, more and more teams in which we already see 5, 6K, even 10K MRR, right? So when you have those kind of numbers, I think you can go a bit deeper into how those numbers happen. So how many people, what is the pricing, uh, is there any churn, is there any usage? So I think even if it's very early stage, if they come with some level of revenues, I think that helps, right? When there is nothing, I think you're just having a team bet. So all you're going deeper is in the team bet. And then having somebody that knows the industry yourself or reaching out to people that tells, does this make sense, right? And if it makes sense, even not in the way they're doing it, but it makes sense, and you have a very good team, you know you're going to have time to make it happen. I think then when you grow the accelerator, it's about, you know, we said in MRR, we trust, and we always said you have to do 4x of your MRR within six to nine months. That's always kind of the main objective, right? My next objective is the seed round. I said, no, the seed round is what you do when you have traction and what you do to enable traction. It's not the objective, right? The objective has to be commercial. But then, of course, every team is different. Sometimes they need MRR, customers, different models. But it's a 4x growth that we're looking for in a year. And I tell to the people, in a SaaS business, with 30% month over month growth for six months, you don't need to look for funding. Funding comes to you. If you have 20%, most people will go and say, let's do it, but let's look at it. And if you have 10 to 20, you might get curiosity. And below that, forget it. This is just doing the wrong, right? And the question is, growth over what, right? So sometimes it's MRR. If it's a GM business, you have to look at also the margin, and you need to look at the scalability. The second thing that we work a lot with them to say, are you in the next round? is when they're able to enable sales that are not a warm leads. So if you look at everybody at the beginning, of course, they get, oh, I have three sales. Yeah, your uncle and your ex-employer and your co-founder <laughs> wife. Okay, good. It's good. You still sold to them and it's good, but it's when we can generate a model that it can create business out of cold leads, right? Automated, LinkedIn, digital marketing, whatever it is, right? And that takes time. So we try to understand, okay, so how do we break that? Are you building the pipeline properly? Are we measuring the pipeline building? Do we know the time between the steps? Do we know the key processes? So when something takes too long, you start experimenting, right? So I think more than a variable or KPI in itself is how the pipeline works, right? I would say that one. Of course, everybody's going to ask you, again, there is, a, is the market big enough? You have differentiation. Of course, that's the basics, right? And we work on making it as crispy as possible, right? But it's going to be still in pre-seed, um, for sure, and sometimes in seed, business model questions, pricing model questions. There's a lot to do. But to me, it's like, can you create a business and develop a pipeline that you can scale? And to me, that's the work that we need to work on them. And then the last one is, are you guys ready? Is this a team that is ready to take it to the next level? 
is this a team that is discussing properly, that has governance, that understands the way, who hires people, who looks at values, who can attract talent. And that you, you, you see it. When you work with them, you see it and you force it. And I think we're having more and more an effect on that part of the business because we're working a lot this business founded transformation because that you can carry longer. They still need that seed level, increased level. You can still advise them at that level on these things, right? I have one final question before we go to the quick fire. That is for you because you've teased it a couple of times, Cristobal. They didn't have any assumptions about the market. They, they came with a completely fresh mind. Now they've actually built it. They figured out how they would target you know, the opportunity that got you all hyped in the beginning. So my question would be, What has turned out to be the superior part of the model in Fractory? What is it that allows them to beat out the competition? The capacity to serve sub-verticals within manufacturing. So remember, they started in laser cutting. That was the vertical, right? Right now they're serving 13, 14. So they figured out which part of the industrial processes, when you move across different sub-verticals, are actually repetitive and can be automated and served by a third party, which is them, which is the, you know, the cut file, sharing, transported, printed down, right? So I think they have figured out that across many different sub-verticals, which allows them to have a much bigger market. Right? And by the way, it's cross-border, always, because it's still very big players with, with set capacity. So instead of being very much only that cut and do that very well, I think they have managed to understand the industrial value chain process and basically focusing one part that is basically cross-verticals in a way. Right? I think that's the one thing they have done superiously and margin management. They're really good at looking at margin to understand Which is the same thing. If you're in the right part of the value chain and you're doing the right thing, you understand the margin, understand what do you have to do more of, what do you have to automate, what do you have to let others do. And I think they're being very good at keep analyzing those numbers. It's, I would say Fractory's top five reporting in the 300 companies we have had from day one. The quality of the reporting of numbers, it was not just in CUSA. They were doing top quality. And this would like people, like, reporting is not an obligation to the investors. Reporting is the way you understand the business and so into your investors and everybody else, you understand it. And Martin and the team got it right from day one. They spent time and invest time on doing this well. So it was great stakeholder management, but great business knowledge. And they exposed these challenges. When there was a margin issue, said, we have a challenge. When they have an issue with the resources, said, we have a challenge. They never hide their weaknesses or challenges. And that created a very trustworthy relationship with all the stakeholders eh, across the value chain. Two really cool insights in what you said, right? It's so simple that we often forget it, right? We learn it in business school. Everyone learns it in business school. You know, you need to measure to manage. You need to measure to manage. And reporting is just showing what you're measuring and managing. It's nothing else, right? So it's not about reporting. It's about everything that's before. And that's why it's important. I love that. And the trust point being beautiful. Uh, Cristobal, you've done a couple of episodes with us already, so you know how we ended quick fire round. This will be more focused on Startup Wise Guys than Fractory because it's what we love to do to end the episodes. Are you ready for it? Always. <laughs> Always, the third time. <laughs> Christopher, why the hell does the world need Startup Wise Guys? We have to keep innovating on disruptive industries. And you can only do that when somebody is the first believer in early stage founders that have nothing but a team and a dream. And supporting them on diminishing their mistakes or the impact of their mistakes. Beautiful. Second question of the quick fire round, Christopher, what will Startup Wise Guys look like in 10 years or so? Top three investor in number of deals in the world. And number one, if it's through the U.S., creating hopefully by then 10 years, 50,000 net creation employment through our founders, which is the impact on, but obviously employment of high quality, supporting a network of no less than 10, 15,000 founders, hopefully by then. Yeah. And that, that also replies the first question, right? The job creation is, is amazing. The potential there is amazing. Third and final question, and this is obviously particularly interesting to us and the syndicate and everyone that is interested in being part of investing into Startup Wise Guys. Why should LPs or investors pick Startup Wise Guys? because early-stage investment is the best trade-off of risk-reward in the industry. We have multipliers by exiting just properly on Series A, and we have the scale that 
80% of our company survive, 50% of them keep going, which means that, you know, in every single fund, there is at least 50 companies that can give you the returns. So apart from everybody else, which is impacting, fun, interesting, and intelligent to do so, but I think it's just the risk reward is actually not understood well and it's the best in the industry. I would maybe add that for any investor that's also looking to, you know, access early stage deals across the globe, you guys are super interesting. Yeah, the diversification, the right? Doing. The diversification, yeah. we have 60, 60 founders, so I think if you want to look at, you control your own country very well, even your region, but exactly. what do we do everything else? We are going to give you the winners or one third of the winners in average of every other region in CCIS, Africa, that you have not way to get there. We're going to cultivate it, educate it, prepare it, and then ready for you to invest in the next rounds. Yeah, and if I should add to that, I'd say that this is why we are particularly in love with Startup Wise Guys is that you're also used to servicing a big LP base that are interested in co-investing with you. So it's not just an afterthought or something, whenever you need capital for a deal, then you, you shoot it out, but it's an integral part of your model, which I believe is, is why it's going to be so exciting when we do this syndicate. It's about creating a powerful ecosystem in which everybody gives us in the different ways, co-investing, mentoring. So you have so many funders, so many LPs, etc. All that power of the network, this will be the most powerful startup network outside of the US in the world. That says it's on purpose at the end of the day yeah. to help growth and success apart from impact. Absolutely. Awesome, Kirsabal. That was it for today. We're so thankful for your time and for your insights here on how you picked and helped scale Fractory. Thanks so much. Thanks to Fractory. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.